tonight on Arena. The documentaries Nothing Compares and Vicky are among the movies up for review. And editor Alan Taylor on the recently published diaries of Alan Rickman. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. We start this evening as usual on a Thursday with film reviews. Nothing compares to Sinead O'Connor, as Catherine Ferguson's new documentary confirms. Vicky Feeling's harrowing story is told in Sasha King's documentary Vicky. Viola Davis stars as an African Amazonian warrior in the historical epic The Woman King, and we talk about The Lost King, the story of the. Uh, reburial of the remains of King Richard III. With me in studio to discuss this week's releases, Angela Flannery, John McGuire joining us down the line. And let's begin with uh, Nothing Compares. Uh, It's almost impossible to think, where would you start, Angela, to tell the life of Sinead O'Connor? There's so much to tell. What approach has Catherine Ferguson taken here? Yeah, she's taking a very interesting approach, Sean, because she isn't telling the whole life like it is not a typical biopic where it's, you know, from A to Z. She's taken five years of Sinead O'Connor's career and it's from the release of The Lion and the Cobra in 1987 up up to uh, 1992 and that notorious instance on Saturday Night Live where she tore up the picture of Pope John Paul II. And so she really is telling the story of how Sinead O'Connor came to be a musician and then came to be this global pop star through Nothing Compares to the Prince song and then to that moment and how that utterly changed mm. her career and changed, uh, you know, the global perception of her. And and leaves it to us to make the decisions about what has happened in, in the meantime, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, but John, where, where the film starts really is in Sinead O'Connor's childhood and the effect yeah. that the kind of the impetus that that was to, I suppose, the kind of campaigning nature that she had right through her life or has still. Yeah, I think uh, her urge to speak her mind and to tell her truth really came is rooted in her traumatic childhood with a mentally ill mother and the abuse that she suffered and her later incarceration then as a young teenager in a Magdalene laundry or an institution associated with a Magdalene laundry. Uh, And it was there that she first met her first music teacher and she learned how to play the guitar and she started to uh, she started to write songs uh, and once then she moved to London with her band, including John Reynolds, who's interviewed in the documentary uh, as her drummer and her partner and the father of a first child. The manipulations and coercions of the record company that she was signed to once she achieved some measure of success, including the request, which I found utterly shocking in the documentary that uh, she terminate a pregnancy as a 21 year old, lest the baby Mm. interfere with the record company's investment in her career. And it's a measure of Ferguson's film that this story that everybody thinks they know about this famous person, Sinead O'Connor, has layer upon layer of context to explore. Not only is it a portrait of the artist, but it's really a a, a portrait Mm. of the times that she was living in. Let's listen to um, a, a little section from the trailer um, uh, to, the, to the movie itself. Uh, this is kind of towards the end of the trailer, which is a good two and a half minutes long. But you get a real sense of two things here. Listen out for a very young Sinead O'Connor's voice and a contemporary Sinead O'Connor's voice. I wasn't thinking to myself, I must be strong. I didn't know I was strong. 
an artist's job is sometimes to create the difficult conversations that need to be had. That's what art is for. My name is Sinead O'Connor. I am a woman. I have something to offer. They tried to bury me. They didn't realize I was a seed. I have to say, that's one of my favorite lines in the documentary that tried to bury me. They didn't realize I was a seed. Angela, um, I, I, I was saying there are two Sinead O'Connor mm. voices in there. We hear lots of archive material of her being interviewed in and around this period in her life. But also there's a contemporary interview that 2019, I think it was made, mm. that really roots the documentary. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think the filmmakers spent three or four days um, getting this interview with Sinead O'Connor and it's you you don't see her in it um, in the in the film. What you what she's done is she's taken her um, audio of the interview and used it as the voiceover track. So it is really, you know, that that's the na- the narrator. For most of it, you know, there are other people who speak in it, but it is Sinead's voice way through it. And it's quite different, isn't it, for, to her when she was a teenager, when she was young. Um, I mean, she's a lifelong smoker, so that probably has something to do with it. But she's so much more mature. She's very funny, very wry, very wise, you know, incredibly articulate. And then when you look at the early interviews, particularly the ones in the Late Late Show, which I think will have a resonance with an Irish audience when people watch this internationally, yeah. I don't think they'll get who Gabe, obviously they won't get who Gabe Byrne is, but the relevance of him and his sort of grandfatherly kind of relationship with her and how that does not age well in this at all. It comes across yeah. as quite patronising mm. and creepy. And as mm. she gets older, it was funny, the last interview she does with that's shown in the documentary, she's much more assertive and much more like the Sinead we know now. And I wondered, did that come after the Annie Ryan interview? I yeah. think it may have. I don't know the chronology mm. of that. But it, it, not only in those gay burn interviews that we get sections from, but in other interviews with American television where people try yeah. to draw parallels. She, she's never angry. She's never rude. No, no, she's she really just, composed and eloquent, yeah. It's extraordinary the way she answers, John. Yeah, but how many times is she asked about the baldy head? I mean, Sean, how did she how did she stick it? This woman is writing songs that are literally bearing her soul mm. to the audience. She's talking about things like the systematic sexual abuse and physical abuse of children by the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland. She's talking about things like the Magdalene Laundries. She's talking about uh, racism, particularly. She's She's a strident anti-racist mm-hmm. and she's got all these things in her songs and all they can say to her is, what's the deal with the baldy head? Yeah. And you, you have to, at the time, and you have to wonder if it is today, what, what, she's not the first woman singer and she won't be the last woman singer to be demonised for expressing a political opinion. But you have to wonder at the time, how did she stick it? Yeah. How did she, how how was fame for Sinead O'Connor in the mid-1990s? I, it comes across as being an absolute torture for her. But you, what also comes across is she points out that women are not allowed to be mm-hmm. angry. She points out that she was crazied by the media, particularly after the Saturday yeah. Night yeah. Live event. And she says, well, don't blame them for thinking I was I was crazy. What I was saying may have sounded crazy that children mm-hmm. were being abused by priests. Mm-hmm. But how right she proved to be, as we know from the sad history that has unfolded yeah. uh, in the meantime. I do want to mention our talk about briefly, Angela, the Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. incident. We see it in all of its glory. And it's really, she she sings her song, War, the, mm. the Haile Selassie um, lyrics, of, or you like, speech set to music by Bob Marley. She sings it totally a cappella. 
Then she rips up mm. the um, the picture of the Pope straight to camera. The silence is deafening. Yeah, she blows out the candles mm. and she walks off. And the person who's booked her, her agent, presumably says, I can't get you out of this. And she goes, you know what? I don't want you to get me out of it. And it's interesting because Sinead O'Connor, looking back in this, goes, you know what? That wasn't the end of my career. It was the beginning of who I really was. Because right from the very beginning, she was never going to do it their way. I mean, you're someone who is exquisitely beautiful. I remember mm. seeing pictures of her, like, I'm, you know, a couple of years younger than her. But, you know, I was 17 when The Lion, the Cobra was released. I remember seeing pictures of her when she was in Tom Tom Coot and Hot Press. And she was, she looked like um, Audrey Hepburn. She was yeah. so beautiful, yeah, you know. Yeah, and so, absolutely, she was somebody who had this incredible voice, incredible talent, was writing her own music, looked beautiful. First thing she did was shave her head. Then she gets pregnant. I mean, she's so funny. She's sitting there at nine months pregnant with a wear a condom t-shirt <laughs> on her. I mean, it was so, like, she's just got a great sense of humour. And then after that, when she goes on stage. Style as well, actually, yeah, well, yeah. what's she doing? She's wearing her baby's baby grow tucked into the arse of yeah. her jeans on stage. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there were yeah, parts yeah. of this where I felt so, so angry really when it was all presented. I mean, Camille oh. Paglia is saying that in the case oh. of in the case of Sinead O'Connor, child abuse may have been ju- was and justified. That, that's a quote from Camille yes. Paglia in the documentary. Let's yeah. be very clear. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're, you're yeah. giving that. Back. I, it is yeah, shocking. I was absolutely horrified, Sean, when Joe Pesci, who was the next week's guest on Saturday Night Live, and he comes out and he opens his monologue by saying that if he was there last week, mm. he would have given yeah. her such a smack. Yeah, and, and again... Jokes I mean, that are better it, left uh, alone. Mm. Overall, John, uh, you, if, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. How much of an accomplishment is this and stars from you? Uh, I, I think, uh, Ferguson, this is her first documentary, her first feature-length documentary, and her brilliant editor, Mick Mahon. And it might only be a very uh, tightly focused examination of O'Connor, but it echoes with significant references yeah. to the times before and since. And the assembly of the archive footage really captures the 90s and highlights the poisonous attitudes and somehow worse, the platitudes that O'Connor had to contend with throughout that part of her career. Uh, it's four stars for me. I, if you have any interest at all in Sinead O'Connor, you have to see this film. Yeah, it's as much a documentary mm. of the times as it is of, of Sinead O'Connor because um, you see absolutely, it through that yeah, prism. Absolutely. Overall, and stars from you, Angela. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with all of those remarks, but also to say that there's a, with something really interesting stylistically in this, and that's how she does the flashbacks. You know, the reenactments, which I would not be a fan of. There's two things I hate in documentaries: talking heads and reenactments. Can't stand them. She has no talking heads, and the reenactments beautifully done. They're like, you know, they're mm. a film in themselves. They have this kind of Angela Carter, eerie, dreamlike feel to them where you see the abuse in her childhood and all of that through the eyes of a child. Absolutely mesmerised. I'm giving it five stars and I think it'll introduce a whole new generation yeah. to Sinead O'Connor's And they'll music. go off and listen it's to the nothing. One thing that, yeah. The one thing that doesn't date, Sean, is the music. The yeah, music is unfortunately, we don't, get, we don't get nothing compares to you because the Prince estate wouldn't give them the rights to use it. can you get? But yeah. let's, let's yeah. make sure that people go and afterwards, I hope they can blare it out in cinemas just as background music. <laughs> it's probably the song yeah. she doesn't want them to listen to anyway. Yeah, nothing compares is the yeah, title maybe. of the documentary. Yeah. That's enough <laughs> said about it in that respect. Okay, let's move on to, uh, you've seen this one, John, Vicky, another very important documentary. Uh, this is the story of Vicky Phelan, of course, who uh, was given the all clear after uh, uh, right. an incorrect cervical uh, cervical cancer screening programme. Once again, John, we're in a place of uh, official Ireland not listening to women and treating them appallingly. 
That's right. It's the second documentary of the week about an inspirational Irish woman, also directed by a first-time Irish woman filmmaker, the Sasha King. We know the story of Vicky Phelan. I don't think we need to go over what that woman had to suffer. And Vicky and Sinead O'Connor don't necessarily on the surface have much in common, but these two brave women, like you say, Sean, were failed by the institutions and the organisations that were supposed to protect them. Both of them were minimised and mistreated throughout their experiences by powerful forces and poisonous social attitudes. Neither of them ever sought to have their names associated with scandal and outrage, and both have used their voices to tell truths that people didn't want to hear. And in the end, in bitter retrospect now, both have been proved to be absolute correct, absolutely correct in every word that they said. Let's listen and to it's a, clip. a mark, I think. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, I'll, listen to a clip, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll thinking, come yeah. back to you. I'll, yeah, I mean, it's her. She is the voice that, that leads us through the, the, the entire film. And here she is um, talking about such an important aspect in terms of when you're dealing with your medical, your medical team or your doctor. She's talking about trust and when the trust is breached, what she felt she had to do. First time round, when you're told you've got cancer, you, you trust, you trust that they know what they're doing and everything is going to be okay. But then I knew, that day, I knew, I just thought, here I am, you know, less than four years later, with a 10 centimetre tumour, worse than before. For me, it was that day that I decided I'm taking back control of this. That's Vicky Phelan in a clip from the film Vicky, yeah. uh, directed by Sasha King. Is it is it all Vicky that we hear, or do we get other people's, do we get some kind of commentary on what is going on as well, John? Initially, we get the story of Vicky Phelan and then the story, it widens uh, to introduce other people that have been associated with what became known as the, uh, as the uh, cervical check scandal. Uh, and they're heartbreaking stories, Sean. They're all heartbreaking stories. Uh, it's Phelan's refusal to accept the seemingly inevitable prognosis that she gets. And together with her legal team, her devoted solicitor, a man called Keen O'Carroll, and they fight to uncover the truth of what happened to her and the hundreds of other Irish women who were in a similar position, while at the same time, Vicky is battling to get access to a clinical trial of a new treatment. So it's it's mm. at times this film is, is uncomfortably intimate. I mean, this is the raw, unvarnished truth of what happened to Vicky Phelan, to her husband, Jim, to their two young kids, and to the other families that we meet later on uh, when it widens up. And there's an extraordinary moment in the middle of it, Sean, uh, just before the negotiations that preceded Phelan's successful high court case in 2018, in the very first meeting with the defending parties, the HSE and the government and everybody else, or the cervical check company, before anybody asked how Vicky Phelan was feeling or if she'd like a glass of water or to sit down, this clearly ill woman was presented with a confidentiality agreement and told to sign it. And had she done so at that time in an office in the high court, we would not now know the full extent of the failure of the HSE in the state or the number of lives taken or the number of lives blighted by that (laughs) mismanagement. And, you know, when you're watching a film like this, uh, heroism feels too small a word. You have a lump in your throat. Even before the opening credits roll, you have a lump in your throat. Even as you talk about it, John. Yeah, even an ordinary woman of 43 years of age facing a terminal diagnosis. And she stares down the might of the state and its most powerful institutions while she's while she's at her most vulnerable. And with the yeah. future financial security of your loved ones and your family at stake, 
in order to ensure that the truth is brought to light. This, you know, it's beyond heroism. This yeah. is warrior stuff. This is the woman king. You know what I yeah, mean? Absolutely. It, it, it really is uh, an extraordinary film to watch. Yeah, you know, we talk about her as an ordinary woman, but I suppose she is living proof that ordinary people can be absolutely and totally extraordinary. What? Uh, how does the film work, um, John, in terms of stars? It, it sounds as if it's an important one to see at any rate. Oh, it's very hard. It's very, you can't really judge this one, Sean. I yeah. mean, uh, in terms of uh, my only, my only drawbacks, my only very slight criticisms would be just in terms of its assembly and how the story is told and they are very minor. I mean the story itself is beyond criticism Vicky Phelan's, what she's done how she's done it, how she has conducted herself throughout the entire ordeal is just extraordinary. So four stars for me, uh, minor minor difficulties with some of the way the the information is is communicated but no problem at all with any of the rest of it. A really, really vital film. Yeah, vital film. Right, let us move on then. Our second two films, we have two documentaries. Second two films are true life tales but told kind of through a fictional uh, camera if you like. First of these is The Woman King set in the early 19th century West Africa. Uh, The Woman King plays out against a backdrop of tribal warfare and African the African slave trade a slave trade directed by Gina Price Prince Brythewood and Viola Davis as the titular Woman King. Who is this Woman King we hear of? Uh, Angela. Um, this woman king played by Viola Davis is a female warrior. She's a, a, a general in the Agoji. The Agoji um, were a real life all-female virgin army in West Africa in the Dahomey Kingdom, which is Benin now. And um, so they the, the film is set in 1823 and so you have this king ruler um, in Dahomey and he is at war with the neighbours who are the Oyo who are coming and taking slaves from uh, the Dahomey kingdom and selling them to the Europeans. Mm. And so his female uh, army are out fighting this basically. And so that's how we meet Viola Davis as Naniska, who's the general of this army. And uh, where does, I want to play a clip featuring uh uh, Nawi, who's played by Thusu Mbedu. Where does she fit into the story, Angela? Um, so she's this young girl who has refused uh, the husband that's been set up for her in an arranged marriage and her father in frustration takes her to the king's palace and offers her as a servant or slave to the king and she ends up being recruited into the Ogoji because after a very fierce battle with the Oyo, Naniska needs to build back up her forces, needs to take in right. new recu- recruits and that's how Nawi ends up in the army. And here is the conversation between Nawi, played by Thusu Mbedu, uh, brought to the palace to train, but she's not keeping up to the standards that are demanded by Naniska, played by Viola Davies. They like the guns. They enjoy practicing with the men in the infantry. I see you flirting. This is not allowed? You know it is not. Why not? The men who are soldiers have wives and children, but the Agogia cannot. How is that fair? Were you this arrogant with your family? No wonder they gave you away. It is you who is arrogant. I am a general. I have earned it. You have earned nothing. I should put you out. Mm. I have watched soldiers die because they did not have discipline. Their easy life did not prepare them for... I did not have an easy life. There's an Ogogia. I did not have an easy life. I, I want to be with the others. I want to fight for my king. Your tears. 
mean nothing. To be a warrior, you must kill your tears. Viola Davis there as Naniska, the woman king of the title of the film we're speaking about, and Thusu Mbedo playing the character of Nawi. John, how does Viola Davis fare as a, as an action hero? Because that's essentially what we have here, a powerful woman who is also the action hero of the piece. That's right. It's like a Braveheart or uh, The Last of the Mohicans. It's this kind of ambitious, large-scale historical storytelling uh, I think Viola Davis is great. I love her in almost everything I've ever seen her in. I have great admiration for her and she's in fine form here in the kind of role that we haven't seen her play before. She's got all the physical attributes she wants. She's got all the power. She can summon all that kind of authority of the general character. The issue is, is that the film that she's in is is deeply lopsided, really, and it it's it's ambitious, but then it extends itself beyond the scope of of its own ambition. There's three main stories. The first is deals with the slave trade and the European slavers that are coming to the king, played by John Boyega, and how their economy of uh, Doheny has become dependent on selling people their own and their neighbours. The second focuses on Aniska and she has her own story. She has uh, the story of her heroism and then she has an intimate story as the leader of the Yakoje. And she's trying to make peace with her troubled past by finding vengeance. And the third is the Tuso Mbedu character. Uh, it's a kind of a coming of age story of an orphan teenager who finds her tribe, if you like. Yes, yeah, so it sounds, and, it sounds uh, from what John's saying there, Angela, that there may be, the film has bitten off more than it can chew, but we can't ignore the, the casting here and mm. what, what Hollywood has kind of finally been listening, it would seem, if if one film is enough to say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about this. I mean, somebody asked me when I said I was going to see it, is it a feminist film? I'm like, I'm not sure the actual content of this film is feminist, albeit about a female army, but certainly this is a revolutionary or, you know, a huge thing that Hollywood, you know, what are we, we're nearly at our 100th Oscars and there's never been, as far as I know, a Best um, Actress Award to a black actor, like female actress mm. or a female female actor and I think that Viola Davis is probably in the running here. Sure, she has a supporting actor role for um, Fences uh, but the entire cast of this, the lead cast, they're all black women and they're all ages and shapes and sizes and it's extraordinary to see. And good to see that. Okay, stars from you on this one, Andrew? Uh, I'm going to give it four because it's really exciting to watch. I think historically quite inaccurate and therefore it's controversial in America. Yeah. I went away, we don't have time to discuss it, but I went away and spent a couple of hours reading about the Ogoji. It's fascinating. <laughs> this is not particularly accurate about the Slave Coast. But, I mean, such an exciting film to watch. Beautiful costumes, like the armoury is incredible in it. Oh, and right. the, they did their own stunts, which Rosary. is extraordinary. You know? four, four from you. Okay, finally to you then, John. Stars on this and we'll move on into The Lost King. Stars from you, John. A star is three for me, Sean. I think it's just a little too conventional. Yes, I, right. I, I understand that it's a groundbreaking film, but I think I they could have had a bit more passion, a bit more energy yeah, about yeah. it. All right, um, um, uh, John, I'll, I'll come. I'll stay with you for The Lost King, which is the story of King Richard III and Philippa Langley, played by Sally Hawkins and this Stephen Frears. We spoke to him about the film on, on Monday's programme, wasn't it, I think? Um, this is another thing which is all about historical inaccuracy, in fact, and fixing that inaccuracy, isn't it? Story. Uh, like you say, Sally Hawkins is Philippa Langley, who is this amateur historian. She's a middle-aged woman, really, working in a soulless job in telephone sales, a- amiably separated from her ex-boss. 
husband, played by Coogan, sharing custody of the two teenage sons. And with no academic credentials or specialist training or anything like that, uh, she goes on a quest to find the remains of Richard III, who had died 500 years before and had all these stories about him, this awful reputation. Mostly, it has to be said, uh, because of the Shakespeare play, that he was a child killer and a hunchback and yeah. a usurper to the throne. Uh, and so there is this mystery about where his last resting place was, and it becomes Philippa's obsession. Yeah. Now, she also has ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, which might be a clue, I suppose, in the film, in the way that Frears and uh, Coogan have adapted it. She's guided on her journey on this quest through arcane mm. uh, information, trying to piece together these clues like the Da Vinci Code, little historical clues. Right. She's guided in, in that by the ghost of Richard III himself, who played by Harry Lloyd. Yeah, that's a nice Manifests as this uh, robe covered in robes uh, with the ermine and the crown and uh, guides her on her yeah. way. And a very, very uh, handsome this, Richard the, III, it has to be said, you know, tall, upstanding and handsome, <laughs> heroic style of king. Um, it, it, there's a feel good feel to this film for sure. Steve Coogan, uh, Jeff Pope, who also wrote Philomena uh, and, and who were with Stephen Frears in that film as well. It's that team back together again. Did it work overall for you, John? It did. Uh, the plot, plot of the film is one thing, but it's not the film. Uh, it's really a story about a woman in her 40s who's been devalued and ignored, who's emotionally unsupported and entirely alone, and whose intelligence and intuition is being unacknowledged and is patronised by all these pompous historian, expert historians. That's really, and Hawkins portrays all of that effortlessly yeah. and engagingly. There's awkward stuff here, though. It, it is a bit uh, staid and a bit steady, a little uncomfortable in certain parts. I would say three stars, Sean. A solid three is what you're saying. Uh, John McGuire there for The Lost King. And John and Angela were also speaking, Angela Flannery also speaking to us about The Woman King, the documentaries Vicky and the other documentary they were speaking about, which was Nothing Compares, all about Sinead O'Connor. Apologies there, we were getting some breakthrough on the line, um, but you'll find out why in a minute, because we're going to have another great interview, I hope, uh, after these breaks. Thanks, Angela and John, for being with us. Uh, just a little flavour there of do you really want to hurt me from Culture Club and we will be speaking about uh, that book a little bit later in the programme. But right now, the actor Alan Rickman died in 2016 and was known as a sublime character actor in films. He was frequently cast as a villain in parts he seemed to relish from criminal mastermind Hans Gruber in Die Hard through the, to the tyrannical sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and on to the enigmatic Professor Severus Snape in the Harry Potter films. But he was also a deeply sensitive actor who could play lovers in the Anthony Miguel directed Truly Madly Deeply or the head of the revolutionary Irish government, Eamon de Valera in Neil Jordan's Michael Collins. Alan Rickman was also an avid keeper of diaries and now these scribbled thoughts and opinions on productions he was in and people he worked with have been published in Madly Deeply, the diaries of Alan Rickman. They've been edited by Alan Taylor, who joins me on the line right now. Uh, Alan, reading your introduction to the diaries, it's it's so surprising to read that an actor, you know, so famous for iconic roles, the Professor Severus of Snape, as I said, in the Harry Potter yeah. films, Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins, which had such an, a, you know, big, made such a splash in this country. He didn't become a household name until 1988, in fact, when he played Hans Gruber in Die Hard, when he was, in Hollywood terms, an old man in his 40s. Yeah, he was 42, actually. And um, 
He was well known, I guess, as a stage actor, and he'd appeared in various television series, including Barchester Towers, where he was very good. But um, I guess fame is about movie fame in the acting world. And when he appeared as Hans Gruber in Die Hard, um, he kind of stole the show. People were very surprised by the way he played this insouciant, mm. well-dressed killer. And, you know, as I say in my introduction, uh, uh, it was a bit like Lord Byron and, and um, Child Harold. Uh, nobody knew him one day, and the next day he woke up and he found himself famous. And suddenly from then on till his death, he was incredibly in demand and very famous and, and known across the world. Yeah, and an overnight success after 20 years of hard work in theatre, possibly more than 20 years of hard yeah, work in yeah, theatre. Exactly uh, we will come back to Hans Gruber for, for certain, but what about the diary side of things? How avid a diary writer was he? When did that all start? Well, it started after um, Die Hard, after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, after um, Love Actually, Truly Madly Deeply. Um, it started um, sort of 25 or so years before his death in the, uh, well, when would that be, 1980s, um, 1990s. But he he started like a lot of diarists, just sort of making notes. He'd, he'd written a diary when he was a very young man. And then there had been a period when he didn't appear to write any diary. And then he started to take this diary um, under his wing. And he wrote kind of short entries. And at first, when I started to read these short entries, I was sort of dismayed, thinking, well, is this all there's going to be? But like a lot of diarists, he, he sort of, it became an addiction. Um, and the diary became a, a sort of constant companion, something he sort of turned to almost on a daily basis and wrote fuller and fuller entries um, uh, almost up until the day he died. He stopped writing about two to three months before mm-hmm. he died um, when he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Yeah, in fact, beautifully in the book that the, the, the writing is then handed over to his wife, Rima. We'll come back to that as well. Um, but, you know, he, he, I wonder, I know you're the editor, so you probably saw lots of stuff that you couldn't share with us and won't share with us. But even in what you have shared with us, he's not afraid to say what he thinks about those around him. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sort of natural suspicion with people who think that if the diaries were a million or so words, and what you've given us is maybe, I don't know, a tenth of that or whatever, that we must have something to hide. In fact, I think that's the, that's not the case at all. Um, there's been no attempt to censor anything that Alan said, no attempt to hide anything. What we've tried to do, what I've tried to do, with the great help of Alan's widow, Rima, is to distill them into a readable book, a manageable mm. book, but yet a book that stays faithful to Alan, that doesn't try to present him as somebody else or somebody he wasn't. So I can think of virtually no examples of other than possible uh, um, legal uh, problems where we've excluded something that should really be in the diaries. I think the pith is there. Yeah, yeah, I'd ask you to give us an example of that, which is, you know, Ruby Wax, who was a great friend of his. His nice little pithy remark about Ruby Wax's interview with Madonna. Yeah, well, as as always with Ruby, as far as Alan was concerned, everything was about Ruby rather than about Madonna or whoever else she was um, interviewing at the time. And, you know, he could be caustic about friends, but the, the wonderful thing I think about him is that he wasn't, he wasn't caustic behind their back. I think he was always prepared to say to their face what he probably put in print. 
And although it might be quite hurtful for, the, for people to read these things now, I've tried to sort of reassure them by saying in the introduction that it was done out of friendship and love and affection. I think Alan was not somebody who really mm. was out there for some kind of revenge or backstabbing yeah. or whatever. He just wasn't that kind of person. Yeah, so he simply says about uh, Ruby Wax, oh, yeah, just listening to Ruby's interview with Madonna, guess who's doing all the talking? <laughs> we kind of, yeah. that's, how he, that's how he puts it down there. However, let, well, us, get, let us get a sense yeah. of him as an actor and maybe some of the things that he, that he wrote about that particular set of process, uh, process. Let's listen to the exchange from Die Hard between hostage taker Hans Gruber, this is Alan Rickman obviously playing that character, and Detective John McLean, played by Bruce Willis. Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. A pain in the ass. Check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman yeah. in a scene there from Die Hard. And with me this evening is the editor of Madly Deeply, the Alan Rickman Diaries. Uh, Alan Taylor is that editor. Even there, he's he's actually moving at a, an incredible pace in terms of speaking for Alan Rickman. He had yeah. that voice. He he really could he could read the telephone book and you'd listen to him. Yeah, he was he had a wonderfully slow delivery, and and it was very easily sent up delivery, and and that voice which. Um, it's so unique, partly due to a, a, a slight speech impediment that he had. So, you know, he suddenly was in everyone's consciousness. That when Alan Rickman appeared on speech on the on the scene, you always waited for the voice. You know, the voice mm-hmm. was Alan Rickman, um, and and it's just inimitable that wonderful scene there. And the problem with Die Hard, in a sense, was that he was so brilliant as a villain that everybody wanted to cast him as a villain. And Alan didn't want to be cast as a villain all the time and got very irritated when interviewers were talking about his villainous roles as if he'd never played anything else. And that was one of the kind of constant irritants throughout the diary, that whenever he did interviews, they would always say, well, why are you always playing the villain? And then he had to go great lengths to tell them, no, that he wasn't always a villain. Yeah, he, um, he and, and also, I think it slightly irked him that most of the money on Die Hard went to employing Bruce Willis. <laughs> Yes. Well, I suppose he, this was this was his turning point. But he, there is another entry in the diary where he refers back to Die Hard ten years later, and it's clear that yes. he was he was very proud of it. Oh, in that, he he was very very proud of it, and uh, was always aware that there were other movies uh, ripping off Die Hard, um, and people always talked about him in Die Hard. You know, it's very difficult when you've made your mark in something that has become so well loved. You can't disown it. You know, it's it's like, um, I don't know, Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22 and people were always asking him, you know, why hadn't he written anything as good as Catch-22 again? And he said, well, who has? And <laughs> Alan was kind of in that same situation. 
Of course, um, he's known and loved in this country in particular for the Neil Jordan film, Michael Collins, uh, yes. epic film around the life of, of Collins and, and the relationship with Eamon de Valera, a very important period in in our uh, history, obviously. what do, uh, He gives us a lot in the diaries, really, uh, in that regard, doesn't he? Yeah, he was fascinated. Um, he did a lot of research for the film, read a lot of books uh, about the period. Um, he thought de Valera was a, a wonderful character to play, charismatic character to play. And he had a, a, a very, very big scene um, in O'Connell Street where he has to stand in front of, is it in front of the post office. Yes, the general post office, make, the GPO. Yeah, and, and make this big speech in front of a huge crowd. And the crowd, I think he was quite taken aback when he had to do the scene because he hadn't quite figured that this was be what it was. You know, there was an actual huge crowd there and he had to stand up and be de Valera. Hmm. And, you know, he, he kind of inhabits, that's what actors do, of course, they inhabit a new role and then a different person every time they stand on stage or go in front of a camera. But, but de Valera was somebody he, he felt quite significant empathy with. Yeah, and uh, you you mentioned that big speech in uh, outside the GPO. Now, obviously, such a vital building in terms of our history. But it, the clip that we yeah. have shows him in it shows Alan Rickman in a really intimate uh, moment in the film. Uh, this is obviously the point at which uh, Devs has is writing to Michael Collins from Kilmainham Jail. The execution yes. of the leaders is going on, and at this point in time, he believes that he is about to be executed. He's very close close to being executed, and. And here is Alan Rickman uh, dictating that letter or saying the letter for exactly. us as he writes. Let's have a listen. The fact that I was born in America might save my hand. Either way, I am ready for what The Irish Republic is a dream no longer. It is daily sealed by the lifeblood of those who proclaimed it. And every one of us, they shoot brings more people to our side. They cannot imprison us forever. And from the day of our release, Michael, we must act as if the Republic is a fact. We defeat the British Empire by ignoring it. That's Alan Rickman as Eamon de Valera yeah. in the film Michael Collins. Of course, I, I, I should have clarified that it's his American citizenship, as he points out in that letter, that has saved him 
uh, in terms of the execution yeah. uh, uh, that the other leaders we hear going on in the background. I, I, I was I was tickled by several of the things he talks about his time in Ireland and, and he clearly had a good sense of the city and had a lot of fun. He mentions a place called Lilies, which many a nightclubber from that particular period of time might, <laughs> might know about. But he also talks about going to a gig with Sharon Shannon playing. He was a huge Sharon Shannon fan. Oh, absolutely. And went and bought us CDs and wanted us to sing at the rap party and, and stuff like that. I mean, he was a man of great enthusiasms and, and very eclectic taste. You know, he was up for the new, mm. you know, that he, he, he actively sought out new stuff, went constantly to plays, went constantly to films, was always buying music, was always going to clubs and places. Um, you know, we had, one of the things we did have to get rid of um, was was the, the number of times he, he ate out in a restaurant. I mean, I, I've never two or three times he could be in d- different restaurants and on particular days. It was incredible. Um, eventually, he got a bit fed up of it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you, we do we do get a good sense that he had a good time when he was here, as well yeah. as working very hard. There's another section of the yeah. book that I just there's so much in it that I could talk forever about it. But let me let me go to another uh, particularly Irish uh, section. 2011, 2012, he took on the, the role of Ibsen's John Gabriel Borkman, uh, Borkman in a version of the uh, by the playwright of the Ibsen play by playwright Irish playwright Frank McGuinness. This was at the Abbey Theatre. He played the titular role with Lindsay Duncan and Fiona Shaw, uh, Irish cast including Marty Ray, Cathy Belton, Joan Sheehy and John Kavanagh. Um, this was not a happy camp and he's he, he's he's fairly clear about where he lays the blame here. Well, he lays the blame at Fiona Shaw, um, who seemed to be sort of doing her own thing. And, you know, it was a constant refrain of his that people um, quite often just wouldn't read the script and play the part they were meant to play. Sometimes actors just wanted to play the part they wanted to play rather than the one that they should have been playing. And this was particularly the case in, in, with the Berkman play. And both he and Lindsay Duncan were, were very fed up with Fiona Shaw, who he admires hugely as an actress. But on that particular occasion, he, they were so fed mm. up with her that they came very close to walking out. Um, and there were many frank exchanges, notes passed to and fro, and they felt that the director wasn't particularly on top of the yeah. situation either, so that they had to be on top of the situation. Yeah, it makes for it's, very... It's, a kind of, it's remarkable. Yeah, it makes for very interesting reading, as do lots more in the diaries as well. And of course, um, you know, the the diagnosis and the illness, and then that, that stopping of the writing of the diaries is an incredibly sad moment. And the decision to hand it over then, you, you give it over to Rima, his wife, Rima Horton, to to finish out the diaries, which is a, a lovely touch, Alan. Well, yeah, well, only Rima could really do that because she'd been with Alan throughout. They'd been together since she was 15 or so, 16, and he was a year older. They'd spent all these years together. She knew him intimately, knew him better than anyone else. And, you know, these painful last few months were, were handed to her because she's the only person who could reflect what was happening at the time. I thought she did it very movingly. Yeah, very. I would agree with you on that totally. Alan, thanks for being with us this evening. That's Alan Taylor speaking to us about Madly Deeply, the Diaries of Alan Rickman, with a foreword by Emma Thompson, another pal of his, and an afterword by his wife, Rima Horton. Uh, the Diaries were edited by Alan Taylor, who was speaking with us this evening, and published by Canongate. 
just a clarification and correction before I go any further. Earlier when, during our film reviews, Angela Flannery was talking about whether uh, a black woman had won an Oscar for in an actor, an actor in a leading role. Of course, I should have told her at the time. Halle Berry did win an Oscar for Monsters Ball for an actress in a leading role. That was in 2002. Now, in his role as a regular contributor to Smash Hits uh, and The Face magazine, Dave Rimmer had a front row view of the new pop explosion of the early 1980s. Acts like Duran Duran, Eurythmics, The Human League and Wham! mounted a new British invasion of America, accounting for more than one third of Billboard Chop. Billboard chart sales of the period. Culture Club, of course, with Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, which we heard earlier on, fronted by charismatic androgynous figure of George O'Dowd, also known as Boy George, whose distinctive image and soulful voice became synonymous with the time, are very much at the heart of Dave Rimmer's book, which he uh, has, which has been re- reissued like punk never happened and delighted to have Dave with us on the programme this evening. Um, Dave, like punk never happened... <laughs> What was it about New Pop that made you come up with that title for the book in the first place? Well, the title came from something that Paul Luella said. Paul Luella said to Neil Tennant when he was interviewing him uh, that he'd seen Spando Ballet in limousines and with jewellery and stuff like that. And he said, he said something like, it's as though punk never happened. And this became a bit of an office joke in Smash It's like punk never happened with... We'd look at anything that seems slightly excessive and say, oh, that's like punk never happened. Um, as a title for the book, it was kind of an irony that like, the point was that although it looked like punk never happened, if punk hadn't happened, the new pop wouldn't have happened. So, um, so the argument of the book is built around that kind of paradox, really. And, and, you know, to what extent, because you were working a uh, regular contributor to, to Smash Hits, as I said, and you were working with the magazine at the time, with Smash Hits at the time, uh, to what extent was there was a big change in the music industry from that punk period, not only in terms of the music itself, but in terms of how the music was being written about? Yeah, well, uh, there was a shift, really, from the kind of um, newsprint format, music weeklies like the New Musical Express or Melody Maker, to magazines like Smash Hits or The Face that were glossy and colourful, uh, that kind of suited the the music of the time better than black and white photos did. Black and white was good for punk. Uh, it wasn't so good for Boy George or Duran Duran or whatever. Yeah, and all of that. There was a, a lot of colour was needed for all of for all of those bands. And and how would you describe the new pop phenomenon then in musical terms? Ooh, uh, in musical terms, I don't know if it had particular characteristics. It wasn't like, I mean, like you can describe punk in musical terms as being kind of back to basics, three chord, mm. guitar, thrash, blah, blah, blah. The new pop groups were all kind of different. Uh, there was, uh, it was a time when synthesizers and electronics were beginning to come into music. So that um, defined quite a lot of it. But like uh, Culture Club weren't really electronic. Uh, Eurythmics were blah, blah, blah. There, there wasn't one over overall style, except it was all pop music. It wasn't uh, rock music. It didn't have pretensions to being authentic or anything like that. It was all kind of like, you know, it, 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 at heart, it was fun. And to what extent did Thatcherite politics, we're at, we're at the height of the, or the kind of the 80s really period in terms of British history. To what extent did Thatcherite politics enable the arrival of, of New Pop, if you like? And what was the reaction of those involved in New Pop to that very conservative and right wing uh, government? 
Well, most of the pop, pop musicians I talked to didn't really have much time for Thatcher. There wasn't there wasn't very much uh, in terms of policy that enabled uh, new pop, but it did kind of function as a bit of a. I mean, there was a recession at the time in Britain. It did function as a kind of enjoyable splash of colour and excitement in the middle of the recession, like um, people could escape a little bit from their troubles, perhaps. Uh, in in hot in, when times are hard. Uh, culture tends to get escapist, and I think there was some of that in the new pop. Yes, I mean, because if we think of particularly, I suppose, Duran Duran and Wham, you, you know, this kind of champagne-swilling, yacht-sailing, limo-driving, yuppie lifestyle, do you think that that was kind of more to present to prevent, present this kind of escapist possibility for people in the middle of the dreariness of what was going on? I think so, to a degree. There's also, I mean, certainly with Duran Duran, to a degree, there's a a principle in operation that the uh, easiest way to make somebody look interesting is to make them look rich. So, I mean, it was all about presentation. I mean, Duran Duran didn't, in the course of their daily lives, run around in Anthony Price suits on yachts. I mean, actually, Simon Le Bon, to a degree, did with his round-the-world yacht race thing mm. a few years later, although he wasn't wearing a suit when he did that. Um you you write in the book as well about the the famous Japanese tour of Culture Club at the height of of the nineteen eighties. This was really extravagant. How how extraordinary was that tour? You could you drop a pin in any day of it, and there were there's lots to talk about. Really, isn't there? Yeah, I mean that Jap- that Japan tour was fascinating. Um, it was a it was a very weird way to see Japan from inside the Boy George entourage. But like every venue would be full of like young Japanese girls all dressed like Boy George, the Budokan or, or wherever. Um, it wasn't kind of like rock and roll mayhem, though. It wasn't like the band rampaging through the country behaving badly. It was all kind of very uh, proper and well behaved and so forth. Um, you, of course, were what know. we what we might call an embedded journalist at the time in that, you know, in some ways you were friends with the guys in, in the band you were travelling with them uh, and yet you were seeing everything up close and personal and were reporting back on that how difficult was it to tread that that line that balance it, it, it was sometimes difficult I mean the, the word embedded has come into the vocabulary since then but uh, but certainly that's how it worked at Smash Hits I mean like Smash Hits had a fairly symbiotic relationship with the big bands of the day. Like, they needed us, we needed them. Um, if you kind of got on well with a particular group, you tended to get assigned to them as the uh, the correspondent for that group. So I was the Culture Club correspondent, and then later I was the Duran Duran correspondent for a while. It was difficult, though, sometimes. I mean, at the end of like writing Like Punk Never Happened, and also... After writing this large Duran Duran feature I wrote for The Face, just after I finished writing the book, in both cases, the uh, the bands were so pissed off with what I'd written that they would never talk to me ever again. Mm. Um, and looking back at it now, I can see that like kind of the problem to a degree was uh, an understanding about what was on the record and what was off the record. Like Nobody ever made anything like that clear. I just took... Yeah. Everything that I that I witnessed is kind and, of grist of the mill, really. Here I am. They've invited me on tour. I've just seen that happen, so I felt free to write about it if it was interesting. Absolutely, and and you do you address that in your afterward, uh, which was written in twenty twenty one. So obviously, you give us a kind of a 
a hindsight view within that as well. Thanks for being with us this evening, Dave. That's David Rimmer, author of Like Punk Never Happened, which is out now and it's published by Faber. And that is our lot for this Friday evening. Uh, Amandine Passadevine was the broadcast coordinator. Ruth Kennington was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1.